I was walking up this hill and I just couldn't, you know, I felt the, like the weight of the world sitting on my chest. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die like right here on this hill by alone. And I remember God just saying to me in that moment, you're not alone. I'm with you. I'm right here. Something that I go back to again and again, I think I still hear that voice going like, but you're not alone. I'm here with you. Hello there, and welcome to I'll Go First. I'm your host, Jessica Minhas, and I am also the founder of I'll Go First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of mental health, hope, healing, and freedom. So how many of you can say that you have found your purpose? You have found it, and you know you have. There is no confusion whatsoever about your authentic calling. You know the core of who you are, what drives you, and what it is that you're meant to be doing with your life. Okay, if you're like me, maybe you're not so sure, or maybe you're overwhelmed trying to figure it out, or maybe you have responsibilities that prohibit you from pursuing what it is that you know you are called to do. If that's you, I think this episode might be helpful. Joining us on the show is Chanel Takoon. She is a certified life planner and a relationship expert trained in marriage and family therapy. And her aha moment was at a moment most of us would feel like we had made it to the top of the world and our dreams were finally coming true. But she says purpose and calling are more than just a paycheck and what culture tells us that we should be achieving. And she's here to teach us how to cultivate our authentic calling. Let's get started. So Chanel, you and I know each other through church. We've actually known each other, I think, for like 15 years or something really crazy. It's insane. I was telling some ladies earlier today, like, I was like, I'm doing this interview with this woman that I've known for so long and to see your heart be so consistent through those years and where you are now has been really cool. I think I could equally gush about you for ages. And I am just so in awe of your story and where you where you've come from and how you got here. So you're you've had an interesting journey finding purpose, which I think is really lucky. I think a lot of people don't find their purpose. I know personally I'm still struggling with that. I know we talk about like the quarter life crisis and then there's the midlife crisis. Is there like a 75% crisis? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you hit that one around 55 or 60 is when you get there. So this is real. <laughs> yeah, it's real. <laughs> So just wait for that. You can plan ahead. You originally were in publishing. Mm -hmm. How did we get here? Oh, it's been, it's been a massive shift. Yeah. I, I always say the, the moment when it all hit for me was standing in Rockefeller Center because I was um, working at Hearst Magazines. I was working at House Beautiful. And so we used to build this, we people at the magazine, not myself, would build this large kitchen that was like a life-size kitchen right in the middle of the rock center where the tree goes. And we'd have all these events and there'd be tourists and everybody thought like, wow, look at these people, you know, standing behind the velvet ropes. They must be so- That is pretty cool. It's so cool. It's, it's, I, I definitely felt like I'm living my best life. That was like the highlight moment. I moved to New York, New York to work in magazines and I remember standing there and thinking, 
this is so incredibly empty and I cannot do this for the rest of my life. And I like hit this wall. And I, that sent me on a journey to just be like, what's my real purpose? Because I'm so much more passionate about all these other things. And what the world is kind of telling me is like success and desirable, like wasn't. I mean, you're really making it. You're at Hearst. I came to visit you a few times at the building and I was so in awe, all these authors, right? When you walk in the door, there was like the wall of authors. And then I always judge an office building by their snacks and you... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> your Hearst has amazing snacks in case anyone wants to know. And the cafeteria is pretty spot on, but I was definitely in awe of you. And you, at that point, you know, in your mid twenties, you were really, yeah, you were living the publishing young twenties dream. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely felt like that you had, um, let's see at Hearst, the, the defining thing for me, there is always the, uh, escalators it's this beautiful like glass building and when you walk in the doors you know you need your badge and all of that to get up to the escalator and you'd you'd go and it feels like you're just going up for stories and stories and uh gail king one day was like coming down and i'm going you know at that moment we were like made it i'm passing by (gasps) where has oprah breathed here (laughs) you know (laughs) like you just kind of felt that totally and it was like it was empty it was it meant nothing but it it oh my gosh that's incredible that you had an awareness that it felt empty i think i just wanted to get to something that really lit me up like i i saw that there were things that i was doing in my personal life that were so much more meaningful and heart-centered and it felt like it was impactful and i thought this space is vanity and i i I mean to say that not that i think all magazines are vanity i i'm like a publishing girl through and through so i still love it i'm a subscriber But for me, it was vanity. It felt like my soul was missing in it. And I thought, I was looking around at the other people and I'm like, oh, they love this. This is their moment. And it didn't feel like it for me. So I listened to that voice. It's, man, it's incredible hearing you say that because of where you've come from. I'm privy to your personal story a little bit more having just known you for so long. I remember when I had that moment, the moment that you're talking about, I struggled so hard to get to New York. And I was like, okay, if I'm an actor, it was, I love acting for the art of it. I really have a hard time with the business. I respect people who are able to go through the business so much because it really can suck your soul out. And I was standing on a red carpet. I had my first movie premiere. It was a very small part, but I, you know, I was like on an international movie project and went to Cannes and I was standing there and I had a reporter ask me, so how does it feel to be an actor in this film? And I stopped and I said, I don't think I like acting. (laughs) And she just stuttered. And I also was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? This was my North star. And coming from nothing, making it in New York City on a premiere. You're in her at Hearst. You're in Rockefeller Center. That moment of realizing like, oh shoot, this isn't what I want. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. I'm picturing you on the red carpet. Like what did the, what did the journalist say? She just it's also like- kind of stuttered. And I think I started crying and then I ran away because yeah. I mean, but there's so much glamour with that. And that's why I just, it's not like we came from privilege, you right. and I you know? So to make it and then be like, uh, this isn't what I want is, is really kind of, I don't know, extraordinary. 
Right. But I think it, it speaks to the importance of living from the inside out because mm, I love that. Like we have this idea that there's all these things that we're supposed to achieve. And if I have these little boxes that I tick and I would say it's like the trifecta, especially for women, the trifecta of getting like money, a man and material things. If I can get all of that, it feels like I've made it. Or at least I feel like that's what culture tells us. And so rarely does that actually satisfy. Like those things often leave us feel, feeling very empty. Um, I, was, I was watching earlier today the uh, Mariah Carey's interview with Oprah, which is always just a good time to hear it from the two of them. But they were talking about Mariah Carey being so gorgeous and, you know, having achieved so much and having this otherworldly talent and how she was just like, and I was so lonely and unhappy, oh, stop. All, you know, wow. I, it's like, yeah, you've got it all on paper. And it's not until this point in her life where she's like, I started to listen to my own truth. I tapped into my faith, like all these different things that are, you can't buy, can't manufacture from outside of yourself. That's the stuff that she leans on as like, that's my life. You know, that's incredible hearing it from Mariah. I mean, we like, wow, that's kind of amazing that we all have that kind of moment if we listen to it and it's it's there yep so what happened next like I said you're so devoted to finding purpose so how did you move forward from that I'm just thinking of the image of success Mm -hmm. how do you then go to the humble part (laughs) yeah well it's terrifying I think you have to have a moment I say you have to have a moment a moment where you have the courage to be nobody you know which I think is terrifying. And we're able to stand there and go like, oh, I don't want this. And and I actually don't know what's next. So you have to be open-handed for a bit and then start to pay attention to, well, what is it that I do want? For me, that looked like starting to pay attention to what I really did well, breaking through the idea that success had to look any particular way, or more importantly, that the application of my talents had to look a certain way. I think that I always had this way with words and, you know, I, that made me a great English student through school and made me obviously want to work in publishing. I had done some editing and writing and, and I was doing well. And so that made me terrified to leave it, to do something else. Cause I was like, Oh, but this is my thing. And then I started noticing, Oh, well, there's something behind the thing. Like, why am I a good writer? It's actually because of a different talent. And so once I started to dig into that a little bit more, um, I was able to start kind of extracting that, which for me was about insight communication and um, breaking down systems and making big ideas accessible to people. Once I did that, I was like, oh, I can do that in other spaces. So I moved into like a therapy journey and became a therapist and then a life planner. What is purpose? Purpose is uh, confusing as all get out. I'll say that. But I will say (laughs) that I think purpose is a location. Mm. Um, And I think it's easiest to understand it as that. Purpose is found at the intersection of our talents, our heart, and our influence. And so I think of it as a journey to get to that space where I can live in that little nexus of those three things. When I think about influence, and this is something I've been thinking about with the community that we've cultivated, people who are listening may have experienced trauma. I know we have both experienced trauma, and I think sometimes the tools to find purpose or the space to find it and cultivate it 
can feel like a luxury. Mm. The time and the effort and then to get like to get assistance, a coach or, or a guide, as you call yourself, which I love so much. How do we work around that? So I think there's a couple of things you can do. I mean, one, I think people who have experienced trauma are well equipped for this because you're scrappy, right? We're like scrappy people who know how to make the best. We know how to make a way when there's no way because we've been in impossible situations and been able to keep our head above water. And so I actually think trauma, people who have experienced trauma excel at this. But I would say it's getting to the place where you find some free resources, take on some of the journey on your own, I mean, I know my website, I offer a roadmap that people can follow to actually get the actual action steps that can lead you to figuring out what your purpose is. I also think finding spaces where um, there are guides that will share some information, like there are great books to be read. I have a community where it can be cost prohibitive, I think, to work one-on-one with a guide or a coach but doing it in a group format makes it a little bit more accessible for people financially while still giving kind of that big bang in terms of value. So I would get scrappy and just start looking into what kind of options might be available. You know, Google has everything right now. That's true. That's true. And we're spending so much time at home right now. Right now we are talking in a time of COVID and everybody is kind of sitting down and asking themselves, what do we do next? Yes, it's so true. It's so true. Part of your journey has also included a little bit of grief when it comes to moving into purpose. I thought that was so important to consider when we are starting that journey of taking up space. The the grief that comes with change, but also I think with boundaries. And you've talked a little bit about when you moved to New York City, there there was a cost to it, not just a financial one, but an emotional one and a relational one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think I came from, so, you know, part of my trauma story is growing up in a household where there was like a lot of love, but parents that experienced their own trauma, as I would say now with more understanding of being, you know, my mom was born in 1944. My dad was born in 1933. Like these are black. Wow. So your, your parents were a little older. They were, they were, my mom was 40 when I was born. You kind of grew up the generation before us. Yes. Yeah. Yep. You're kind of like a child of the sixties. I feel like that a little bit. I feel like I've got that sixties, like wise sage vibe. Like I've been here before, but I really haven't. But that's what you get when you get old parents. They're like done playing kids stuff, right? So they like grow you up real fast. I mean, that's like a whole, we should do that episode because growing yeah. up with my grandfather, I always feel like the outlier because my husband, Chris, always jokes with me like you were actually born in like the 50s or 60s. The things you say, the way that you approach items, you hang on to everything. Like my shoes get reinvented for 15 years before I'm willing to get rid of them because <laughs> growing up with these parents that were older. Yes. Yes. You've internalized it. It's like, yeah, I feel like we're secretly in our fifties right now is what's happening. And we look really good. We look so good. (laughs) But that, that intergenerational trauma, I think that you're talking about that, that really plays into when we break free as young people. Yes. Yes. Well, and so that was, that's my exact story is like just having such hardship with 
um, the trauma that they had seen and experienced with how they grew up and how that then led to a bit of them being done, right? Like, I mean, they were so much older that by the time I was born, it's like, you know, mom's 40, dad's 50. They're like, we're pretty done raising kids. And so I felt like a little mini adult and had a lot of hardships into my teen years of my, my father passed away had cancer. And then my mom got really ill. And so I became a caregiver for her. And it was just this wildly traumatic time for me of taking care of her and um, some of the choices that she was making with her life at that point, trying to just be a normal high school kid, bouncing around the country with like where she was moving based on what we could afford and who could take care of her. And um, I ended up living with a different family for the last couple of years. A family from church took me in and I lived with them just so that I could graduate from my high school. I knew for myself, like if I could just get to college, like mm -hmm. that was my thought, mm -hmm. just get to college, then I can make it. And so grateful to Monique, my mom, number two, who was so kind and took me in, even though I had a big protective bubble of don't love me, don't touch me, don't be near me through all of that. And she was like, when you're ready, I'm here. And, um, that helped me to go to college and eventually move to New York. And to your point about the cost, it was like, okay, how do I engage with my family of origin and balance that with this new life that I want to step into? I felt like I worked so hard in those last years to like make something of myself. Yeah. And so how could I protect the health that I was finding and discovering while not completely cutting off from family that I loved. I mean, it's, it's not, my family's not terrible. It's just, they're just broken. Like a lot of people are. You've just endured the stars. You've endured so much and now you've earned them. And it just makes my heart just so joyful. I'm just Aww. so damn proud of you. And when you were talking about your family is broken as a therapist, you once said, I don't think anyone is crazy. People are just yeah. doing the things based on the information they've been given and the experiences they've had. So you have a, such a tremendous amount of grace for your family. And I think being on the outside, I it's hard for me to understand that, but then I get it for my own family as well. There was so much trauma there. I think the hard part I had, and I'm wondering how you handled this, so many people listening maybe at that point in their family right now where they're caregivers and they have their career and how to balance that and how to balance leaving. So I'm wondering, like, how did you find the strength to let go and trust that it will be okay? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I don't know that I ever had, well, okay. No, that's not true. I will say there was this moment that, and I don't know if your listeners are a lot of people of faith, but that's a big part of my life. I remember having this moment when I was probably 16 or 17 and all of my friends had just said, um, Chanel, we're tired of your life being so hard. And I was living in Orange County, mind you. I'm like the only black girl from this poor family that was struggling. And it's like all my friends were like wealthy white folks, like from Real Housewives of Orange County. That's where, you know, that was my life. So it was this, this constant shifting between all these realities. And I remember my friends telling me, we're done dealing with this. We want to have fun. And I remember feeling oh so abandoned. It was the first panic attack I'd ever had. And I was walking. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Like just a Oh, kid. that is crushing. So crushing. 
I was walking up this hill and I just couldn't, you know, I felt the, like the weight of the world sitting on my chest. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die like right here on this hill by alone. And I remember God just saying to me in that moment, like, you're not alone. I'm with you. I'm right here. And that truly is a thread that it, it got me off of the ledge in that moment. But it's something that I go back to again and again in these moments where I've had to be like, I've got to like not talk to that family member again. And what does that mean for me to be alone or whatever? I think I still hear that voice going like, but you're not alone. I'm here wow. with you. That's so powerful. And I just kind of hang on to that. It's not, you know, not to say that it's easy. That's, it's hard as I don't know what, but that's the confidence, I guess, that I have to do that. How did you learn how to take up space and give yourself permission to move on? Mm. I will say that is the gift of my mom. She played small a lot of her life. That will make me emotional to think of her. She played small because she didn't know how to play big. She was the oldest of 11 or 12 kids and had a single mom. And so it was very hard for her. She was raising babies her whole life, which is why when she was 40 and had me and was done. But I remember that growing up, she used to always just say like, Chanel, I never got to figure out who I wanted to be. I never knew what I liked. And she would always talk about it. And I think so much of the work that I do is because I don't want any woman to ever feel that way. And I knew that I never wanted to feel that way. So she always asked me what I liked and what I cared about and what did I think about things. And I think her, I think that was her gift of like, here's where I lack and I won't allow my daughter to not have that. So I think I take up space because I just was raised with this idea that I deserve to. I still, I believe every single woman, every person, but every woman in particular is entitled to a great life. And so for me, it's like, what makes you better than me that you get to have something that I should be entitled to as well? So if you get to sit at the table, I get to sit at the table, like move over. That's kind of my- Wow, that's amazing that you have that instilled in you. Yeah. I came up in trauma too, but I have just a different experience with that sort of narrative. And that is probably one of the things I struggle with the most is mm -hmm. feeling like I have the permission to take up space. Yeah. Yeah. And you do. I think part of it is recognizing we all take up space, but how are you going to take it up, right? How are you going to show up in the space that you have? You can show up as meek. You can show up as like, I will be insignificant. I will be quiet. Or you can show up and be like, I'm going to bring the fullness of who I am and y'all are going to notice, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and I think that people, people have an impact even when they don't realize it. I mean, you're someone I've known for so many years and obviously because of what you do, there's this part of your life where you're very seen. And then there's like the a personal part of your life where I feel like you're, you know, you're a little like hidden, but it's like, I see you, you still are very visible, you know? And I think you leave this lasting impression on people's lives. And I think we all have that in some way for someone. You're speaking a little bit about your struggles, but I already hear in your story, even as a kid, that you had this ability to reframe your hardship. And in your work, you talk about how to recognize grace in your story. I think looking for some sort of, redemptive edge to what we do. Yeah. 
like when I did my life plan, I'll say, so that's how I became a life planner. Somebody did my life plan because I was in rock center going, you know, WTF am I going to do with my life? And so I went through this life plan process later. And one of the little three lines that came out was about uh, my heart being for everyone to recognize the fingerprints of God on their life. There's always something that's happened. And so I do think there's a hunt that you can go through for the grace that you've been extended. If we sit there for long enough, we will find something. And usually that place is then, you know, uh, such a clue to the space we're meant to move in and like help other people and, you know, leave a a positive impact on the world. But yeah, it's, it's looking for that grace for sure. When did you have that moment that you were able to crystallize it? What did that look like for you? I think that it's a series of situations where I kept running into things where I would realize that something where I had felt very inadequate or ill-prepared in the past would show up as being this thing of grace for me in a new circumstance. So I, you know, I landed in New York not really knowing what to do. And I got my job at Hearst largely because of a mentor that I'd happened to go up and speak to. She spoke at my school. She was like a young alumni. I went to this small private Christian college in California. I was like one of five black girls there and felt so awkward. And this black woman came and spoke at my school and I was like, oh my gosh, I could be you. And she was working at Essence Magazine in New York. And I was like, this is so magical. And when nothing immediately came out of our exchange. And then fast forward two or three years later, it was because of her that like a door got opened and I knew her name. But there kept being instances where it would be some happenstance and something where I'd immediately experienced the actual moment as hardship or as things not working out as I'd wanted. And then it would be like, oh, well, because you did that thing is why you're here. Because you had that experience is why we need your voice. I did a lot of racial reconciliation coaching for a while. And it's like, yeah, growing up as, you know, a black girl in a predominantly white neighborhood and um, not being bitter, but being hopeful and understanding allyship, it sucked at the time. And now it like opens these doors. So there's a lot of that that's helped me kind of crystallize that grace. I really hear how you've been able to keep your purpose flexible in these different seasons. I know that's a big part of your work as well. Can you speak a little bit about what that means? I love that concept. I think, I don't know if it's coming from the background I came from, but it's been so easy for me to make everything black and white and not everything is black and white. And now as I get older, I'm realizing that and it's a struggle to try and be flexible with everything. And I always thought that you had to have that guiding star and also that your purpose was attached to monetary value, but it's not. No, it's not. And that's such a great point. This is one thing that I teach a little bit in a course. I have a a course called Clarify My Calling. And one of the mindsets that we have to kind of help the students of that course understand is this idea of letting go of your purpose only being executed in that workspace because it's bigger than that. And so we talk about the other buckets of your life and how there's such a broader application of your life purpose because it needs to be that I can show up and have purpose if I'm not like at a job. 
that's the despair and compare. I mean, what is our hobbies right now? It's looking on social media and it's, I'll speak for myself. I have to really hold myself accountable and have the Apple timestamp that says you're not allowed to look at social media anymore because I can spiral into that dark hole where I am like, man, everybody's able to show up on social media and it does look great. And I know they're struggling and they sometimes talk about that too, but they make it look cool. And I, <laughs> I like having that purpose as that core to cut through all of that noise is is so vital, but it is hard to not have it attached to the idea of success, even if it's not just monetary, but success and reputation or credibility yeah. and all of that. Yeah. And I, I think it's the idea that we kind of led with, right? Of what actually is satisfying. And once you start to become more aware of yourself and what's made you happy, you're like, oh, all those moments that apparently looked nice on paper <laughs> as success and that were like a great filtered photo for Instagram, those were not the most meaningful moments of my life. And so if I'm to find my life purpose, it's probably somewhere else. It's probably not in those things, um, or at least not all the time. I always say that our jobs are not strong enough or sufficient to bear the weight of our life purpose. They just can't. It, it can't be done. So we need more and we do need it to be flexible, which I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a common part of trauma too, is the black and white thinking. I err on that side. It's, I think that- It's like a control thing, I think. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's control and it's like watching my back. Like I need to know, is this person safe or not safe? Spot on. There yeah. is no gray. You're either here to do good or do harm. Yes. Let me know which one you are. Yes. <laughs> So we're like, let's just fast track to let me categorize you. So I think that's an adaptive thing that's grace for yourself for that. I certainly struggle. I can do it with clients. I have a harder time doing it for myself, 100%. But I think there's a flexibility that's necessary for our purpose because we grow and we evolve and we change. And the deal is that your core purpose never changes, but the application of it may shift. So it just shows up differently depending on where you are in your life. I think that ability to take risk is such a skill to develop like you're talking about. I'm working with my therapist right now on that idea of taking risk in small things like taking up space right now. And we talk about the biological mechanisms that happen to, to get there because it can send you, send me at least into a fight or flight response where I'm like, no, I can't take that risk. And it's crazy to see how that reflects than in finding your purpose? Oh, I, you know, one, that's beautiful that you're doing that and that she's kind of guiding you through that experience. And it, what triggered for me in you saying that was how hard it is as somebody who's gone through trauma to actually know what you love because there's absolutely such a detachment from like such, I, at least I'll say this for myself. I have often felt so cut off from my body and from my just lived like experience. I have no stopping point for when is too much. I've had to develop that because I am like suffering. Yes. That's a part of life. We can all, I can, yeah, I got that down. I understand that. No problem. Grief. Yeah. I got you. This is hard. <laughs> There's an emergency. Totally. You want me yeah. to be hypervigilant in a room and let you know who's going to come and like hit you. I got you too. And then I will find them Yes. and destroy their lives. Yes. yes. 
You want me to appreciate beauty and do meditation? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, thank you. Yeah. We don't have time for that. No, we're out there defending ourselves. Yes. It's like, you want me to sit here, relax and close my eyes? I don't know who's behind me. What? (laughs) Like, who, who are you? Yeah. Maybe you just, you just unlocked for me in that moment. This is me as the therapist saying, you just unlocked for me why I don't like doing, uh, any sort of meditation. It's so hard for me to sit in those moments. It's so hard, but there's like that biological response to it. One thing that I'm sure you've heard in your training as well, and this was so eye-opening for me, is that the ability to appreciate beauty is a biological response to calmness. Like it's the autonomic nervous system that allows us to have the space to appreciate beauty. I think that's the same for meditation, but also what we're really talking about right now, giving yourself the space to figure out your purpose. I feel like that's a real biological challenge that we yeah. have if we've experienced trauma because that space of rest is uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, it, it is uncomfortable and that's why it's like a practice, right? Mm, that's yeah. why like meditation is like something that at least I say for my clients, particularly if they're struggling with anxiety or something is like, you know, you're not supposed to be good at it day one. It's something that takes time and it evolves and it deepens. It's like yoga, it's stretching. You can't just, if you try to stretch too quickly, you're going to pop something. You need to like work and lean into it. And I have something with, um, actually we're doing this as a community right now for women of consequence. We have these five postures that I recommend folks lean into to try to create space to even start to explore their purpose because it's, it's not natural. And I think we have to almost back ourselves into it (laughs) and, you know, almost like trick our minds and prepare ourselves and, and start intentionally actually sending ourselves messages of I'm okay, I'm okay. So I feel free to do that. You've said before on your IGTV that we don't have to be more than we are, but we do need to make sure that we are not less. We need to make sure we stand fully in the authority of who we are. Yeah. That idea that we, we don't have to be more. I think that sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves. We're trying to live these extraordinary Absolutely. Yeah. And we're all on the defense right now. Yeah. It's like, you're in this too. We are in, like, there are days when my husband and I, we just look at each other and I'm like, isn't it crazy? We are in a global pandemic. Yes. Just like take a seat for a second and remember what is happening. This is like the undoing of our, you know, culture and society as we know it. And I believe we're going to be fine, but also let's take a beat. So I think it's okay not to try to be, the, the phrase in our house is, stop trying to be so such a much. <laughs> like, you don't have to be so such a much. You can just be who you are. <laughs> on one of our other episodes, I had the, uh, a dear friend of mine, a National Geographic explorer now. Uh, he and I met in Nepal. His name is Ben Ayers. He launched a project. I met him when he was 23. I was 21. And I, what was so inspiring to me and what helped me launch my human rights career, he's the reason that I launched my human rights career, is he had gone to rural Nepal and was like, I'm just going to help out this community. I'm going to stay here and spend a few years learning the language. I'll even become a porter. And now, 20 years later, he's helped over 100,000 people lift out of poverty by cultivating vocational training within the community so they can lift themselves up out of the community. And now he's at this phase where he came back to the States. He's living in his great aunt's um, cabin, <laughs> to helping to take care of her. And the conversation was about how do we learn how to be ordinary 
Yes. Because we've done so much work to be extraordinary and that probably, you know, that comes from that insecurity and definitely comes from trying to put a stamp on the world and that protective element that we talked about earlier in the conversation coming from nothing, you know, but now how do we stay okay with just being okay? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard. I mean, that's why that line of, and which I did not create that line. I love it. It's J.D. Salinger in um, The Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield. And I think it's about him auditioning for theater or something like that. And he's like, I'm not going to go up for the play because I'm so sick of being like one of these phonies. And he's like, I just wish that, you know, one day I would like find the courage to be a nobody. And I was like, yeah, it's so gets me in my teenage angst, but also in this idea of like, it does take courage to actually step away from being extraordinary. It's terrifying to say like, oh, I might be average. I might just be, and not even average, I might just be ordinary. Like I might be me. And I think that comes from such a devaluation that we've done of the average life because him being in a cabin, taking care of his aunt is like an amazing thing to do. And for her, it's extraordinary. And for the people who maybe love her and care about her, it's an extraordinary act. And we make the Kardashians extraordinary. We have elevated these false realities to being what life is about. And those things actually have very little metal in life. They don't, they don't mean much. So yeah, the, the ordinary is important. You're launching this project, Women of Consequence. When you yes. talk about it, you say, I want to help women who are drowning in shallow water. That makes me think <laughs> of this idea of embracing being okay as you who you are. Yeah, I think women are, they feel like they're drowning. I think a lot of women are in the middle of a good life, but they want a great life. And they feel like if I were to look around at most of what I'm experiencing day to day, my life is okay and I feel like I'm drowning. And that's this idea of the water shallow. I could stand up and be fine and I don't know how to do that. And I think the Women of Consequence community is really about helping women learn how to stand. It's like, how can I help you figure out who you are so you can live in the life that you want (laughs) versus this one that maybe you're putting on, but you're unhappy in that experience. When I hear you say a great life, my impulse is to jump to success, prestige, credibility. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to define what, what does it really mean to have a great life? I think a great life, well, it varies for every person, but I think a great life is one where you are, have fully activated all of your talents and one where you're making an impact in the, sp- in the space that's most meaningful to your heart, mm-hmm. where you're actually making a difference. Because I think that there's no one on this planet who has gone through your experiences that has your unique set of talents and genius and that cares about the same stuff that you care about and that sees the brokenness in the world the way that you see it. And then has been positioned to do things based on where you've been positioned. And I feel like if you're not leaning into that space, you're probably going to feel pretty basic. And that doesn't have to look extraordinary. That might not mean that you have a lot of money. It just means that 
maybe you're a woman who it's like, you're really great at telling your own story and you make a space for other people to share theirs. And that might be a place that you hold. And it can feel like when you're doing that, like you come alive. I think that's, that's the only place that you can get a great life, but it has to, it has to be your great life. Yes. Yes. This idea of being deeply alive and having a deeply fulfilling life wherever you are at. Mm -hmm. When did you have that aha moment as Oprah loves to call it? When did you have that moment, that breakthrough moment? Cause that's something you talk about too, that that's part of your purpose is being that breakthrough moment helper and guide. When did you have that for yourself? Well, I think I'm, I'm getting closer to it. I'm always moving closer to it. I think moving to Atlanta, we were living in New York. We still, uh, my husband, when I say we, I mean, my husband and I, we have a therapy practice in Manhattan. So we still are connected there, work there, but we had to pick up and move to Atlanta quite suddenly right before a pandemic hit. And I feel like I let go of all of these other things that was kind of like this vision that I'd had for my life. I think it was like the full death of my New York dream of like move there, work in publishing, be, you know, successful. I say New Yorkers have to drink a particular kind of Kool-Aid because it's so hard to live in the city that you have to believe you're living in the greatest place on earth or else you can't get out of bed in the morning. And we believe that for a while. And it's then- true. <laughs> Yeah. yeah and, and I don't, it's like, Hey, I know you're a New Yorker, so I don't want to tell you the secret oh, no, of this what's is on the hundred percent accurate. <laughs> yeah. And so I still love the city, but I think it was this moment where I actually had to die to self and be like, okay, you're not a New Yorker anymore. You're not going to be this identity of what is so amazing in the world, which I still do secretly believe that New Yorkers are the best people on the planet. But I think having to move to Atlanta made me let go of that and start to find my purpose in different spaces and live a very small, quiet life. Like behind me, I have this beautiful bit of art from Dana Tanamachi did this art that says live a quiet life and work with your hands. And it's this daily reminder for me of I like of finding myself in the insignificance. Like I'm just, I sit at my desk and I talk to women and I help them live great lives. And I just kind of sit in the credits of their stories and hope that great things will happen. And I think that's for me, the, the place where things started to get unlocked is like, oh, that feels really good. I don't have to be out in front. I don't have to be center. I don't have to be a New Yorker. Uh, I can still just live a really meaningful life. You are a remarkable woman. I respect you and honor you so, 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 so much. It is such a joy to see how you have evolved and how you keep evolving and how you're supporting so many women. If we want to work with you, we can go to your website, Women of Consequence has already launched. So come to womenofconsequence.co for community and we'd love to have you. And then if we'd like to get in touch with you working one-on-one, where can we find you? So you can, you can head to the same website. There's a little button there where you can click to do coaching with me one-on-one, or you can go to my personal website, chaneldokun.com. And I'd love to have you there too. I celebrate you so much. <laughs> Thank you for coming. We'll definitely have to have you back because there's so much we didn't get to cover in these 45 minutes. No, of course. Well, I'll come back anytime. Love you. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.